We often think and talk about how the world presents us with a warped image of God. It's the cultural soup we swim in, and it's essentially nothing new. We have an adversary who loves to twist the truth about God. Remember the Garden of Eden? But how often do we stop to think about what message concerning our humanity we're continually bombarded with? To mention just two, we hear that we have an incredible inner strength. We can overcome anything if we only connect with that strength within. Likewise, we're told that the sky's the limit for our ambitions. Hey girl, hey buddy, whatever you want to do in your life, you can do it. Just believe in yourself. Well, the Bible gives us an accurate assessment of mankind as those who did not create ourselves. We're creatures, creatures beloved and yet finite, gifted and yet apart from Christ, powerless in the grip of sin. No other faith gives such a nuanced picture of man and woman, which answers for the complexities we see in the human race and the perplexities we deal with in ourselves. In the Psalms of Ascent, which we will be looking at today in our series, gives us an accurate view of ourselves, dearly loved and limited, reflecting our Creator in many ways and yet completely unable to save ourselves. Psalm 130, our first psalm, is a psalm of lament, and even though it's the agonizing cry of the heart of one man, it was meant to be sung as a worshiping community, says Eugene Peterson, as were all these songs of ascent. I hope to show how it draws us toward recognition of our limited capacity and the importance of community. And, Tiny Psalm 131 also deals with our limitations, how acknowledging them is good for us and for us as a community. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I think we can all relate to this statement, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, or as the message puts it, help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. We, even as Christians, often think we can manage things under our own power until the bottom falls out. We forget that we're dependent creatures, that all that we are and have comes from the hand of God. We often find ourselves stuck in terrible, even hopeless situations. Now, we don't know why the psalmist here finds himself in the depths. The image here may be reminiscent of the story of Jonah, someone struggling to surface to extricate himself from a bad situation. And we don't have to know because it makes this psalm something that readers can still identify with even thousands of years after it was written. I've had times where just as I'm managing to surface from the troubles of life to catch a breath, another billow of suffering knocks me back under again. And I'll bet you felt like this too. 
Now, in the Psalms of Ascent, we've seen that the different writers of the Psalms have sometimes found themselves in danger and suffering because of the evil without. Enemies, oppressors, forces beyond their control, and not their fault. But something different is going on here. Look at the verse that comes right on the heels of the cry for help. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We don't know, but maybe the psalmist got himself into this terrible plight, and that's why, right after his crying out for mercy, he found himself recalling words that echo Exodus 34, God's revelation of himself to Moses, verses that the psalmist would have learned by heart when he was a child, that God is a forgiving God. Here they are. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In verse 3 of Psalm 130, the psalmist says that if God graded us on the basis of our rebellion against him, we'd be in a far worse place than just crying out from the depths. He says, who could stand? Answer, no one. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery, surrounded by men who were prepared to throw stones at her for her sin? They stood there until Jesus said, okay, the one of you who is without any sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. And starting with the older men, one by one, they walked away. They all walked away. They knew that each of them had sinned. They were just as liable before a perfect God for their iniquities as the woman they wanted to stone. If God kept a scorecard of our iniquities, God's ear wouldn't be open to our cries from the pit we've dug for ourselves. But happily, our God is a forgiving God. As the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan said, the great God did set so high an esteem upon the love of his poor creatures that rather than he would go without their love, he would pardon their transgressions. I love this quote. God, the God who needs nothing and no one, doesn't want to go without our love. Given the choice between losing us and our love and himself suffering unimaginably to remove sin and the death that we deserve so he could enjoy us forever, he chose suffering. If you find yourself in a pit and are there because of your own doing, even in that case, God is there with you, his face full of compassion towards you, ready to forgive you the instant you turn to him in your need, acknowledging what you've done. Verse seven says, for with the Lord, there's steadfast love, love that's consistently seeking us and our good. And with him is not only redemption, which is the image of God, buying back your life from someone who's holding you captive, but plentiful redemption. Even if you've sold yourself into the slavery of sin because of some momentary hope that something lesser than God can fill your need and give you the good life, God your Father is ready with the priceless life of his Son Jesus to pay for the release of your soul from whatever that bondage may be. His mercy is that great. As the psalmist, turning from his plight to address the whole congregation of Israel, says in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. If you're listening and find yourself in the depths, there's every reason for hope. Is it a deep pit that another has dug for you or that life has hurled you in? 
God hears your cries and will have mercy. Is it a pit you've dug for yourself? The nation of Israel dug so many pits for itself with all its idolatry, turning through all their checkered history to anyone and anything but God for help. But the psalmist is reminding his fellow pilgrims, God did not turn his back on them. He held out this certain hope. God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Our iniquities are really our worst dangers because they're the only thing that can keep us from God. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God will welcome anyone who comes to him with a contrite heart, a heart willing to acknowledge its sin and turn from it toward forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is the reassurance we have from the pen of the Apostle John. I think the psalmist models something else for us here as well. He ends his song by proclaiming God's redemption to his fellow Israelites. O oh, Israel, he says, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He's widening out the scope of his poetic account of suffering to address and include all of Israel. The Apostle James, at the end of his letter in the New Testament, similarly addresses the church about suffering, sickness, and sin, and he encouraged his hearers to, quote, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, sometimes the result of sin is physical infirmity, but also sin infests our emotional and spiritual health. And James is saying how healing it can be to confess sin to one another. To hear a flesh and blood person state that God has forgiven you for something is powerful, just like the psalmist's proclamation of plentiful redemption was, was for the pilgrims. We need these reminders when sin has trampled us down in our finite, limited state God has made us to be not only dependent on him, but on one another. We were made for community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, In confession there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. Sin that's been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. It's been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear apart the community. Now the community bears the sin of the individual believer who's no longer alone with this evil, but has cast off this sin by confessing it and handing it over to God. The sinner has been relieved of sin's burden. We can admit our sins and in this way act, and in this very act, find community for the first time. Consider being open with a trusted older believer, someone with whom you'd feel comfortable confessing sin. Community groups can be a great way to find someone whom you trust, whom you could ask to hear a confession of sin and to pray for you. Truthfully, I think this is part of what makes the Genesis program, which we offer at the church, so effective, as it employs this kind of honesty and reassurance of forgiveness. Just a word about those of us who may hear a confession of sin. This is a great responsibility. We're to receive such confidences with grace and loving prayer, being mindful of our own frailty. We don't speak of these confessions to others, nor should we try to fix anyone with our own wisdom. Well, just as Psalm 130 reminds us of our limitations as human beings, God's mercy and our need for community, so Psalm 131 reminds us of another way in which we bump up against our limitations and ends with another exhortation to the whole community. Let's read its three verses. 
O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Whereas Psalm 130 implied sin and guilt in a general sense, Psalm 131, which is attributed to David, deals with deliverance from an all-too-human ambition fueled by pride. This seems to be the words of a man whom we'll take to be David, who's looking back on a place where he was thinking more highly of himself and his powers than he ought to have been. And if we're honest, we can see this all around us and, yes, within ourselves. We even see it in the lives of those closest to Jesus when he walked on the earth. Remember Jesus' disciples fighting over who was the greatest? And the mother of James and John wanting Jesus to reserve the best seats in his kingdom for her boys? I wince when I read that. And it's partly because I see myself in it. We know we could have been those disciples. We could have been that mother. I think for the pilgrims who sang this psalm, it must have been encouraging and motivating to think that even the great King David admitted he wasn't adequate to grasp, solve, and accomplish everything. There's nothing new under the sun. We live in a culture that tells us we can eventually solve all mysteries by scientific inquiry. We can figure out the right solutions to our society's problems and to our own if we count on the wisest minds without any help from God. The sky's the limit for us as people. We're getting smarter and stronger and wiser. But David here had learned quite the opposite, that he was finite. There were mysteries he couldn't solve, issues that were above his pay grade. He's decided he's not going to waste any more time trying to be what he wasn't created to be. And as the words, my eyes are not raised too high, implies looking down on others. He was going to rest in the only one who has the answers. He was not going to put his hope in his own powers, but in the Lord. Professor of theology and author Kelly Capick has said, Our limitations don't threaten us, but they liberate us to worship God and cherish others. When we admit we're limited, we're filled with awe and gratitude toward God, and we're so very happy to be on this pilgrimage with one another. Another word for this would be humility, a very good place to be. Life is full of those things that are beyond us, no matter how hard we try to grasp them. Sometimes they're the jobs we don't get hired for, the colleges we're not accepted into, the people whom we want to impress who don't even notice us, our failure to get the biggest house or the best car. But sometimes they're mysteries we can't fathom, from why am I suffering to a smaller, very real turmoil like, where in the world did I put an envelope of money? When we were recently on an incredible trip to Italy, a gift from dear friends with whom we shared the adventure, I was reminded how quickly I can turn into the very unquiet and uncomposed infant that David alludes to. I had arranged for a guide in Rome to take us on a tour of the Vatican Museums in the Sistine Chapel. I'd carefully squirreled away the hundreds of euros I needed to pay him in an envelope. And in the whirlwind that travel often is, and the confusion that ensued in my life after breaking my arm on day two of the trip, we were packing up from one set of lodgings to move on to Rome. And I remember telling Dave, my husband, that I was hiding the money in a really good place in my suitcase. 
We'll fast forward to Rome. I thought to get out the envelope to be ready for the tour. Do you think I could find it anywhere? No. In my distress, I yanked out stuff from all the hiding places I could think of in my luggage. Our hotel room looking worse than the streets of Rome, which sadly are strewn with litter these days. I was devastated. I called the last hotel hoping that the envelope was found in my room. No such luck. I was upset, angry with myself, feeling foolish, and not too kindly toward a maid who perhaps had made off with a good little haul of bills. Finally, in a quiet moment, trying to articulate to God my self-recriminations and my turmoil, I was stopped with this thought. If you have lost it, isn't it my money anyway? Can I not do what I want with my money? Well, that word brought my spirit peace. I brightened up and calmed down at the reminder that it was God's, and he knew where it was, and I prayed a blessing on someone who'd taken it, if that were the case. His reminder calmed and quieted my soul. It's all his. Your job is his. Your body is his. Your children are his. Your house and car are his. Your relationships are his. You can tear open your life circumstances and do all you can do to resolve something or try to figure it out. But in the end, we are finite. So much is beyond us. And the rest of the lost Euro story? Well, when I got home and unpacked my suitcase fully and in my right mind, I found the envelope so well hidden, apparently, that even the one who'd hit it couldn't find it. In effect, what God was communicating to me was that I had tried my hardest, but that the situation was beyond my solving at that time and that I needed to trust him. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? As the psalmist says in the very last verse of this little psalm, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And there's no more apt picture, I think, of humility than a child who knows he's a child and who trusts his mom to care for his needs. One morning recently, our daughter Liz told her three-year-old son, Knox, that she was leaving to exercise. Then Daddy accidentally mentioned that where she went to exercise was at the pool. They have one in their community that lives. Liz often takes Knox to, which he loves. Well, Mommy had gone to the pool without Knox, and he was devastated. He couldn't understand it. He cried his heart out. When she got home and learned what had happened, Liz told him she was so sorry that he was sad, but that the kiddie pool was closed and she had only gone to the grown-up pool to do her exercise. What he said back to her surprised her. Thank you, Mommy. I always love you, even if you do things that make me sad. Here's a little boy who, after hurt feelings and hot tears, had composed and quieted his little soul because he trusted in the goodness of his Mommy whom he cherishes. Our limitations don't threaten us, but they liberate us to worship God and cherish others. Humility would say to you, reach out to the people in your community group for prayer, for help after you've listened to this together. Or if you're not in a community group, reach out to a trusted believer. We need each other. When we're in a deep pit, when we've been tripped up by sin, when we've gotten involved in something beyond our understanding and ability to handle. Psalm 8 begins and ends with the words, How majestic is your name in all the earth? And in the very middle, ask the question, What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, the question isn't directly answered, but in some very important way, our being finite creatures contributes to the majesty of the infinite God's name in all the earth. The worth of your life to God is very great. We're limited, yes, and so 
very loved. In you, O Lord, is full redemption. In you, O Lord, complete forgiveness. In you, O Lord, is our salvation. Lord, we trust in your unfailing love. You heard our cry for mercy.